picking up in Ecclesiastes where we left off, Ecclesiastes 1 to 3. This is, of the 66 books in the Bible, one of the more challenging books uh, in, in the Bible. Why is it so challenging? Well, one reason it's challenging is it's in the Old Testament. And so they have a lot of different ways of thinking, different things that were going on then. A lot different from 21st century America. Another reason why it's challenging is the key word in verse 2 that is repeated several times in the book. Vanity. Uh, That word gives a negative, dark, sinister feel to this book. I mean, think about it. How does he start off his book? Vanity. Vanity. Boy, that's a great uplifting way to start a book, isn't it? There's a dark kind of sinister negative feel to it. Another reason why this is so challenging is Solomon doesn't, didn't write like Paul did in the New Testament. How did Paul write? Well, the first half of his book, book was usually, this is what you need to believe. And the second half was, this is what you need to do. Based on, this is what you need to believe. Very simple. Tell me what I need to believe. And then what I should do. Solomon in Ecclesiastes, he kind of tends to, it seems for our, our vantage point, kind of wand, aimlessly wandering about from one thing to another. And we're just kind of, wait a minute. And we want to use that V word, vanity, <laughs> and trying to understand. So to help us be able to pick up in verse 4, or chapter 4 next week, uh, uh, knowing, having, having a better feel for it, um, let's review uh, where we were so that we can learn how to uh, drive, as it were. In fact, I'll use that as kind of an illustration. Um, how long has it been since you drove a manual transmission and uh, our truck driving brother is not allowed? Or we have two. Uh, is yours a manual or trans- automatic? Okay, so we got two of these manual guys. You guys don't count. The rest of us, when's the last time you've driven a manual transmission? That's how I learned how to drive. Back in the 1980s, I think I could figure it out. You push the clutch in, you start the car, um, you slowly let the clutch out as you have it in first gear. Um, I remember the first time Dad said in our little Honda Civic, a 1980 Honda Civic, I mean, this thing's a little bug, a uh, small thing of a car. And he, he let me, first time driving, back it out. I thought, you're our, this is not wise. <laughs> Uh, so I, I put it in reverse, I started the car, well, put the clutch in, started the car, and then he said, no, let the clutch out. He didn't say anything about let it out slowly. So I let the clutch out, and guess what happened? We just kind of eased our way back right out the, no, that's not what happens. If you've never driven a stick shift, you're clueless. If you pop the clutch, that's what that's called, this is what's going to happen. You're going to jerk back and forth. And if you've never driven, that's a, a, a manual transmission uh, going from gear to gear. You're grinding the gears. You're popping the clutch. It's a painful experience. Uh, really painful. It can be expensive if you don't get the hang of it. And that's where we can be at in Ecclesiastes. Or popping the clutch. Or grinding the gears. And I'm just not... We, so let's, let's get some basic aspects uh, of, of Ecclesiastes that I, I put in your sheet here. The first basic aspect is who wrote this book? The author is Solomon. Now, he doesn't name himself here, 
But look at chapter 1, verse 1. The words of the preacher, and then he describes himself. The son of David, king in Jerusalem. Well, which son of David was king in Jerusalem? Solomon. And you read the rest of the book, and there's indisputable proof that this is the guy who wrote this book. His aim in writing was this. His aim in writing Ecclesiastes is what's the meaning and purpose of life? Well, that's a question people ask today, isn't it? What's the meaning of life? What's the purpose of life? And his frequent assessment in trying to find answers to that question is vanity. He goes to one thing and then another thing and another thing and another thing to try to find is this, does this give the key? Is this the ultimate advantage of life? And his assessment is vanity. It's not it at all. And so we need to, number two, understand what does this word vanity mean? Now, most of you know the Bible was not written in English. It was written in Hebrew. The Hebrew word for vanity is also used in different contexts for breath and wind. It depends on the context in which it's used. Whether this is talking about breath Wind, or in this case, this concept, I'll use the English word here, vanity, all right? The idea of it here used in Ecclesiastes is something that is elusive. Something that's hard to grasp. In fact, look to chapter 1 and verse 14. Chapter 1 verse 14. I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and indeed, all is vanity and Grasping for the wind. We have here two parallel statements that help us see what's being said here. He uses a single word, vanity, and then several words, the grasping for wind. Okay, let's all try to catch the wind right now. How successful will we be? You're going to try to put your hands around it and it's just going to slip through your fingers. Maybe we'll try a little harder and we will always fail and it'll always be frustrating and we'll never get the hang of it, will we? That's the idea. Two words that I've used to help us understand what's really being conveyed by this word vanity. I don't think vanity is the best word because it does give us a negative idea and there is a negative aspect to it. But two words that really help us are a frustrating puzzle or a frustrating mystery. Uh, I used the example when I was teaching through this a few months ago. The world's largest puzzle is over 50,000 pieces. Can you imagine doing a 50,000-piece puzzle? You could probably figure it out because you've got the big picture there. But what if the 50,000-piece puzzle was a polar bear in a snowstorm? That's going to be, what are the two words? A frustrating puzzle. Could you figure it out? And all, oh, by the way, all the pieces are the same. Those are the worst kind of puzzles in my view. When all the pieces are the same, how do you, oh man, that is just, what's the first word? Frustrating and mysterious, or it's a puzzle. Grasping life's meaning and purpose, here's the important thing. Trying to grasp life's meaning and purpose in a sin-cursed world. It is difficult, 
It is frustrating. It is incomprehensible. It's elusive. It's like trying to catch the wind in your hand. It's practically impossible. Why does he repeat it? Verse 2, vanity of vanities, vanity of vanities. Well, he repeats it for emphasis. This is done two other, several other times in the, in the Hebrew Bible. Holy of holies. We sang about that in the first hymn, didn't we? Isaiah 6, the holy of holies. That's talking about the most holy place. Uh, the book after Ecclesiastes is what? Song of Solomon. It's sometimes called the Song of Songs. And what's meant by that expression is it is the best of songs. And so this is emphasized here to get this point up. This is really frustrating. This is a big puzzle. This is mysterious and incomprehensible. Now, this doesn't mean that the book has a negative message until the very last two verses. Chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. The end of the matter is this. Fear God and keep his commandments. And remember that you're going to answer to the Lord. This doesn't mean that chapter 1, verse 1 to chapter 12, verse 12, it's all negative. It's all difficult. That's not the case at all. Living in a sin-cursed world, it is frustrating, isn't it? And it is disappointing. That's one key thing Ecclesiastes tells us about. But Ecclesiastes also tells us, and we will see this today, that God is sovereign, especially even over a sin-cursed world. We live in a sin-cursed world, but who is always sovereign? Who always accomplishes his purposes? What did we just sing there? God works in mysterious ways. From our perspective, from blind man, it's he'll never get it. His purposes will ripen fast. We trust him. That he will make it plain. When you fear the Lord in life, you will grasp life's purpose. You will be able to rightly enjoy life. That's what we learn from Ecclesiastes. We live in a sin-cursed world. God is sovereign. And when you fear the Lord, you will understand the struggles, but you will be able to understand what the purpose of life is and you'll be able to truly, rightly enjoy life. Number three, what's the message of Ecclesiastes? What's the message of Ecclesiastes? Um, that little finger-pointing thing means this is the main idea, the big idea, the point. Okay, And I have some blanks here to help you uh, make sure you get these points. So here's a summary of the entire book of Ecclesiastes. So, while life in a fallen world, that's your first blank, while life in a fallen world makes no sense to man, while life in a fallen world makes no sense to man, he can wisely enjoy life. While life in a fallen world makes no sense to man, he can wisely enjoy life if he is right with God. And that's R-I-G-H-T, not W-R-I-T-E, okay? If he's right with God. Life in a fallen world makes no sense to man. It's a frustrating puzzle. He can wisely enjoy life if he's right with God. 
Five important things for us to grasp from this book to help you understand the message. Number one, man is finite, F-I-N-I-T-E. We are finite. That means we're limited. We have a limited length of existence. You're born at a certain time, and that's it. You're limited in space. Six foot two, such and such pounds, ability to know and do certain things. We have to sleep. Sickness affects us. We are finite. Number two, the world is affected by sin. The world is affected by sin. Sin touches and affects everything. Men and animals, rich and poor, the wise and the foolish, it affects every experience in this world. What is sin? Sin is falling short of God's glory. It is failing to obey his commands. God created us in his image to reflect his glory so that every thought of yours would be like a, a godly thought. Every movement of your heart, your, not your physical heart, but your affections, the things that you love, would be thoroughly godly, righteous, and holy. Every word that you say, every action will be holy and right. God made us to be that way. Is that the case? Do you ever send your thoughts? Do you ever, ever have a wrong feeling towards someone? A wrong action? Do you ever say the wrong thing? That is sin. And sin thoroughly corrupts, infects, affects our life, and this life as well. The world is affected by sin. Number three. Because man is fallen and limited, he cannot fully comprehend He cannot fully comprehend life in a fallen world. There is nothing in this world that gives you the key to unlock and grasp the purpose and meaning of life. Because if you take it out of this world thinking this is going to give the true meaning of life, you need to remember number two, which was what? Everything in this life is affected by what? Sin, including This thing that you're saying gives you the meaning of life. It will not. It will fail every time. Number four. Now we start getting to the good news. First three points were the the, the hard things, but we got to grasp those. Number four. Sinful man must have a relationship. Must have a relationship with the creator to whom he is responsible must have a relationship with the Creator to whom he is responsible. Let's go to chapter 12 of Ecclesiastes. I put verse 13. Probably should make that 13 and 14. Chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. Here, Solomon draws everything together, sums it all up. He says in chapter 12, verse 13, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. Look at this. This is man's all. You must have a right relationship 
with your creator. And then verse 14. Why is that so important? Verse 14 tells us. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. We think we can hide things from people. And we might be successful in doing that. But it's impossible to hide anything from God. It is absolutely impossible. You must have a right relationship with the Creator. Number five, if one has such a relationship with God, and you can right now, if you do, you can wisely enjoy life. You can wisely enjoy life. There's often... People go off on on extremes. We go on extremes, don't we? One extreme with this is, man, life is just bad. It's hard. And we shouldn't enjoy life at all. We need to really be dark. and We need to be holy and humble and reverent. Number one, I I would say that's a wrong understanding of holiness and reverence. But that's one pendulum extreme. Guess what the other pendulum extreme would be? Hey, live life. Enjoy it. We're going to live it up. Carpe diem. Because we're going to die. Just live it up. Go for the gusto. I mean, that's wrong also. When you have a right relationship with the creator, you can wisely, correctly, judiciously, rightly enjoy life. God gives us privileges in life that you can wisely enjoy. You can enjoy food, work, family, and things like that. What is the fear of the Lord? I put that for you on your sheet here. The fear of the Lord is a reverent faith in Jesus Christ, exclusively loving, obeying, and worshiping he whom I will give an account to. I made that personal just for me, but for you, so that when you read that, you make it personal. So the outline of Ecclesiastes, as we work through this outline, remember the, the main idea of Ecclesiastes. While life in a fallen world makes no sense to man, you can wisely enjoy it if you're right with God. Remember, Ecclesiastes is not put together like one of Paul's letters. Romans, uh, 1 Corinthians, Ephesians. You know, where he says, this is doctrine and this is duty. This is what you need to believe and this is how you need to live based on that. Think of Ecclesiastes instead of that. Think of it maybe along the lines of kind of going through a house for the first time. A big house. And as you make your way through that house, you open a door to one room and you kind of look at the things that are in there and You make some assessments and you go to another room that's different. You go to another room that's different. Different things that are going on. You make assessments of that. That's kind of the idea, a picture of what Solomon is doing here. He's going from one room to the next. Okay, we're so used to logical point one, point two. And Solomon is doing something different. Why is he? Different times. Different ways of expressing. Different literature. Okay, one of the things I pointed out in in my introduction to Ecclesiastes some months ago is Solomon uses a lot of different types of literature. Do you remember the G word for that? Genre, G-E-N-R-E. He uses poetry. 
He uses legal discourse. He uses autobiography. He uses all kinds of different ways of literature to, to get his point across. And so he's going to these different rooms. Is this the meaning of life? Can I find the meaning of life in this? No. Oh, man, I just spent all this. Oh, it's a frustrating mystery. It's hard to grasp. Maybe over here. Nope. Maybe over here. Nope. He does learn some things and does share that. Okay. The introduction, verses 1 to 11. The second main point. I'm just going to walk through this outline real quick. In chapter 1, verse 12 to chapter 6, verse 9. Nothing in the sin-cursed world gives you an ultimate advantage of life. And there's two, two aspects of that. Uh, the first the different experience in, in life prevent you from gaining an advantage. Uh, we looked at so far what people accomplish and know, and then what it, people experience, and also in the judgment of God. And we'll pick up next week into the second part of this, this first section of Ecclesiastes. The difficult experiences in life prevent you from gaining an advantage, an ultimate advantage. We'll look next week, verses 1 to 3, how oppression affects that and then work and then wealth a third main section of ecclesiastes chapter 6 verse 10 to chapter 11 verse 6 you must live a godly life though ignorant of god's purposes we have an introduction and then the fact man can't figure out what god is doing in the present and man can't figure out what god will do in the future now there are two truths aren't there Man cannot figure out what is God doing right now. And we definitely can't figure out what's God going to do in the future. So what do you need to do? You need to live a godly life. And then his conclusion, you can enjoy life in a God-fearing manner, knowing God's sure judgment. Now, one part that I did not really cover, that I just kind of walked through, that I have included in my speaking and teaching through this, is this fifth point here. Christian interpretation and application of Ecclesiastes. Um, I'm tempted to challenge you to read all 12 chapters of Ecclesiastes this week and write down all the verses where Jesus is named. Why are you laughing? Because you won't find it there. You will not find it there. He was born centuries after Ecclesiastes was written. You will not find the name of Jesus here. You won't find the concept of church. Uh, you won't find the concept of missions. You won't find the concept of you know, immersion or baptism. You won't find any of these Christian type things here. But yet, look at the definition that I gave you for the fear of God, for example, on the previous page of your handout. The fear of the Lord is a reverent faith in, what did I put there? Jesus Christ, exclusively loving, obeying, and worshiping he whom I will give an account to. So I want to take a minute to, or two to talk about, number five, a Christian interpretation and application of Ecclesiastes. First, let me say this. It is wrong to Christianize the Old Testament. Um, and so how preachers have done that in the past is frequently they'll go to some passages like when they're building the tabernacle in Exodus, and they'll say this beam and this uh, part of the cord, it's, it points to Christ. And, 
And they'll often use expressions like finding Jesus in the Old Testament. You know what's happening there? What's happening with that is they're making this mean something other than what the author intended. They're taking truth, truth for sure, from the New Testament, and they're putting it on top of, they're making it say something that Solomon was never in Solomon's mind because Solomon didn't know about Jesus of Nazareth. Did he know about the true God? Absolutely. Fear the Lord. This is the beginning of wisdom. So let me be clear. While it's wrong to Christianize the Old Testament, it is necessary. It is absolutely necessary then to understand and apply the Old Testament to our day and age. So two things involved here in understanding and applying the Old Testament to our day and age here, where we do believe in Jesus of Nazareth because the scriptures told us about him. We do have church. We do have the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper and things of that nature. Two important things. Number one, you need to seek to find out what did the biblical author say here? What's the truth that he's getting across? What did he say? Don't make him say something. Listen to what he wrote. God the Holy Spirit moved him to write that. What did he write? And then number two, when you've understood that truth, then number two, you have to ask, how do I correctly apply that as a Christian? How do I correctly apply that as a Christian? Quick illustration that I've used in the past. In the book of Deuteronomy, the Old Testament, the law given to Israel, it says that Israelites needed to build a parapet around their roof. This is kind of like a wall. Now, was that a suggestion to Israel or a command? It's a command, isn't it? What are the two things I said you need to do? What did the author say? How do we correctly apply it to our lives as Christians? What did the author say? Build a wall around your roof. We think, that's goofy. Why would you do that? Because when we think our roofs or roofs, depending on how you like to say it, we think this, don't we? But roofs in their day were not like that. Guess what they were like? They were flats. And they did things. They walked around up on their roof. And so God said through Moses to Israel, build a little wall around your roof. Why? To protect those from falling off. Are you responsible, homeowners, for building a wall, literally, around your roof? No. Why? Number one, you're not Israel. Back in the Old Testament, you're not under the jurisdiction of the Mosaic Law. And you live in Northeast Ohio. And so you have this kind of a roof. What's the truth? Make whatever necessary, take whatever necessary precautions that you need to do so that people's lives are protected. If you've got a sidewalk in front of your road, in front of your house, and one is really up high, what could happen with a passerby? 
He could trip and fall. What would be a good idea to do then? Get the sidewalk repaired. These are different applications. But before you can have correct application, you must have correct interpretation. All right? So when I incorporate Jesus Christ into my preaching and teaching here from Ecclesiastes, it is not from the immediate text. I am not trying to find Jesus in the Old Testament. It is applying God's truth from the text for our Christian setting. This is 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. How much of Scripture is given by inspiration of God? What did it say there? All. And that includes the Old Testament, doesn't it? All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is profitable. It is useful. It has profit for you. For doctrine. For reproof. For correction. For discipline and training in righteousness. So that you will be a godly believer. Man of God. Completely equipped for every good work. We need to do this. So, in the time remaining here, let's do a quick walkthrough of what we've seen so far in Ecclesiastes. A summary of Ecclesiastes. We read this morning, I read this morning, verses 1 through 11. This is the big idea and plan of Ecclesiastes. What does that little finger pointing thing mean? This is a a summary statement of these verses here, okay? Trying to make sense of life apart from Christ will always be a baffling, impossible mystery. He gives the big idea of the book in verse 2. Life, trying to understand the meaning of life from from the standpoint of a sin-cursed world. It is a struggle. It's frustrating. It's a puzzle. And then he zeroes in on that in verse 3 in the plan of Ecclesiastes. He talks about verses 4 to 8, how life just keeps on going. One generation, the sun rises and goes down, wind flows, flies. Life just keeps on going. And then verses 9 to 11, there's nothing new in history. This is showing the, the frustrations that we have in a sin-cursed world and trying to find the meaning and purpose of life. Do you remember how I described when we start coming to chapter 1, verse 12 here in number 2? How did I describe Ecclesiastes? Is it like Paul, doctrine, duty, uh, faith, practice? No, I said it's more like going from one room to another room. Okay. Now, I only have two kids at home right now. At one time, we had six kids in our house. And their rooms looked a lot different from each other's. Especially when you had multiple kids in the same room. We had some of our girls were neat freaks and some of our girls, I don't know how you would describe the opposite of a neat freak and I want to be careful because they're my daughters and I love them and they've given me grandchildren since then. So they were not neat freaks, okay? <laughs> you see definite differences from room, one room to the next. And in the interest of full disclosure, then you come to my office and you see where the not neat freaks got it from. Enough said. The first room is number two. Life in a sin-cursed world. Verses 12 to 18. Tells us this. Neither fallen man's efforts or knowledge can ultimately improve life 
in a sin-cursed world. He asks a couple questions, verses 12 to 15. I'm not going to read the text right now. I asked you to read it in preparation. But in, in walking through this, hopefully you can, you'll do that yourself. Okay? He asks, can man's efforts permanently improve life? Well, he had all the resources. He's a king, the superpower of the, the time. He put the effort in, and his conclusion was this. Nope, can't do it. It will not change how things are. Because God has cursed the world because of sin. And because of God's curse, fallen man it always fails and he's always frustrated. Verse 14, I have seen all the works that are done under the sun. Indeed, all is vanity and grasping for the wind. And he quotes a proverb in verse 14 or verse 15 to back it up. He asks the second question, verses 16 to 18. Can man's wisdom provide thorough understanding of life? Man's wisdom. You think Solomon was up for that task? Was he wise enough to assess whether wisdom was good? He is the wisest man who ever lived, save Jesus Christ. He could do a full study. And he saw wisdom and foolishness simultaneously exist. Verse 17. I set my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. They simultaneously exist as seemingly legitimate options because it's a sin-cursed world. And so fallen man's wisdom cannot provide satisfactory answers. I perceive this is also grasping for the wind. And then he quotes another proverb in verse 18 to back it up. In much wisdom is much grief. He who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Do you remember how I illustrated that? Yesterday, I learned how to do ceramic tile on a wall. My friend Chris Pierce, my friends Chris Pierce and Jim Weiser taught me how. And suddenly, I became an expert. Y'all don't believe me, do you? I became an expert in doing ceramic tile. No, just learning a little bit makes you very dangerous. Makes you very dangerous. I know how to drive a stick ship, so I can drive your guys' trucks perfectly then, can't I? Eh, no. If you are an expert drywaller, if you know music well, if you are an excellent accountant, you've been a farmer all your life, you are a cook par excellence or a baker, these things are a great blessing, but when you're with somebody who doesn't have these knowledge, this knowledge, that just kind of like, what? Like, oh, no, 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 stop, don't do it. Don't, just let me do that for you. That's what you say. Let, let me do that for you. Why? What's wrong with how I do it? It's fine. No, you don't have the expertise. That's what he's saying here in verse uh, 18. And much wisdom is much grief. The more you learn the more there's challenges, and that helps us see the effects of sin in this world. Another room, verse, uh, chapter 2. You only live once. That was a common expression during the uh, 2020 to 2022 years. YOLO, you only live once. Well, Solomon says, living for yourself is not the meaning and purpose of life. And I included this. 
uh, next part because this is important to grasp because when he walks through verses 1 through 9 or so, it can kind of seem like he's a hedonist. He lives just for the, uh, the aim of just gratifying his. He's just going to let it all out. He's going to drink as much as he can and live loosely. That is not what he's saying at all because look what I said here. Solomon says basically this, all the while controlled by God's truth, I sought to find ultimate meaning and significance in two areas. In verse 3, he said, I searched in my heart how to gratify my flesh with wine while guiding my heart with wisdom. And then drop down to verse 9. So I became great and excelled more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. So he is controlled by God's truth, wisdom is the correct application of God's truth to everyday life. So he looked at things that are enjoyable, mirth, pleasure, laughter, drink, silliness. As conclusion, no, life's meaning is not found in these things. Maybe it's in projects, one project to the next, or getting things. No, he had houses, vineyards, gardens, parks, reservoirs, herds, flocks, silver, gold, treasures, all that. None of it. Does that have application for us today? The meaning of life is not found in experiences or in possessions. Another room, number four, your gravestone. Regardless of who you are, you will die. Is the meaning and purpose in life found in being wise? He walks into this room thinking that that's the case. But what did he see? He saw the fool dies, who also dies. The wise person dies. Is there any advantage, ultimate advantage of this? He had the conclusive answer. In the end, number two, both the wise and the foolish die and are forgotten. You might say, well, I remember, we can remember from history, historians are picky on what they remember. They do not have exclusive uh, recall. And I use this as an example in this. Tell me about your, your, your great, 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 great grandma. You can't. Maybe your great grandma. I remember my great grandmas had two of them. I had more than, you know what I mean. They were alive. I remember them. What about your great-great-grandma? Hmm, I don't even think I know their names. What about their great-great? They lived, they lived long lives. Probably. Maybe not. They loved. They lived. They did things. They accomplished things. They said wise things. Who remembers them now? They're gone. They're forgotten. And his point of this is... Is the meaning of life found in being wise or foolish? No, because what's going to happen to both? They're both going to die. Furthermore, number three, after you die, everything you accomplish is surrendered to others. You can't take it with you. There's no guarantee how it's going to be utilized. And so death and being forgotten makes wise living a frustrating mystery. It is hard. It is, it is really Difficult to grasp. Why does life exist with all this going on? Then he moves to another room, number five. Can and should a Christian enjoy life? 
And we saw, Christian, you can and must sensibly enjoy life by submitting to Christ. Let's go to chapter 2. And let's read these verses here. Because he's finally getting to a room where, you know what? We can learn some things positively. We need to learn the other things too. Life is not found, the meaning of life is not found in things. But when you trust the Lord and you fear him, you can and truly enjoy life. Chapter 2, verse 22. For what has a man for all his labor and for the striving of his heart with which he has toiled under the sun? All his days are sorrowful and his work burdensome. Even in the night, his heart takes no rest. This also is vanity. Nothing is better for man than that he should eat and drink and that his soul should enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw was from the hand of God. For who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Now, the New King James says more than I. And when I walk through this, this is best understood from the, the, the ancient text as without God. Okay, So for who can eat or who can have enjoyment without God? And this is substantiated, supported by verse 26. For God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy to a man who's good in his sight. But to the sinner, he gives the work of gathering and collecting that he may give to him who is good before God. This is also a frustrating thing to grasp. You can and must enjoy life by submitting to Christ. Number one, enjoyment in life cannot be found in life. The things of this life, because they're going to pass away and they're frustrating. But number two, when you know the Lord, you can truly enjoy life. God blesses those who love him and gives good gifts. Getting close to finishing the house that we've walked through, the the rooms that we've walked through so far. So let's come to chapter 3 in the back side of your sheet. I think it's the back of your sheet. Eternity and time. This is a passage I think a lot of people have heard about. For everything there is a season, Okay. And I don't, know if, I don't know if you remember when I walked through that, but I spent about this much time walking through verses 1 through 8. Very little time. The main point of verses 1 to 15, you must submissively recognize God's sovereignty and greatly rejoice in his gifts. Verses 1 to 8 simply shows us the cycles of life under the hand of a sovereign, providential God. The meaning of life. His response to that in verse 9, what profit, what ultimate advantage does the worker have from that in which he labors? Life has cycles. It goes through cycles. You might not remember what I said then. Life goes through cycles. I am 53. My youth is behind me. Old age is in front of me. You know, it seemed like just a little while ago, I was 20, looking ahead, and then in my 20s, working, going to grad school, my 30s, finally in uh, serving the Lord, lots of kids, busy, 40s, you know, continuing on, kids are starting to go to high school, Late 40s, 50s, Grandpa. Wait, 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 hold on. Grandpa? No, 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 I'm too young for that. Grandpa? Grandpa Greenfield. In one sense, it took years to get to that point. In another sense, it went like 
list, didn't it? There's seasons. And what I said there was, guess what, young people? Mark my words. This is going to happen to you too. I want you to remember this day. February, what is it, 19? 2023. Where Pastor Greenfield, that aged 53-year-old man, said to you in your teens, and your early 20s, you too are going to get old. And you might not think about it. But eventually you're going to get to your 80s. You're going to look back on your life's labors and you're going to say, it's going to all be forgotten. The next generation is going to completely forget it. They're not going to appreciate the good work that you did. And on your gravestone, it's just going to simply say, Dan Greenfield, 1969 to 2000, I don't know, 23, 2045, who knows? That's it. It doesn't tell anything about you. Whoa, that's the meaning of, that's life. That's frustrating. I don't grasp, there's got to be more than that. That's why you need to see life from God's perspective. And when you do, you can enjoy your lasagna. You can enjoy your children and your grandchildren. You can enjoy the work that you're doing right now and the things that come from it. Work isn't always easy, is it? But there are good things that do come from work. It is a gift from God. We need to recognize his sovereignty. And his purpose for everything is that he is an infinite, perfect God. Last room that we looked at is verses, chapter 3, verses 16 to 22. Your lots in life. Those sinners corrupt justice. Believers trusting God's perfect justice can judiciously enjoy the results of the work. Now this is definitely a different room. He's not looking at things. He's looking at, wait, this is God's world but there's injustice happening in the halls of justice. That shouldn't happen. Lord, where's the justice, number one? Well, you need to remember what the Lord says in verse 17, chapter 3, verse 17. God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. He will judge the righteous, and he will judge the wicked in his time. Well, why does God allow injustice to continue now? That's verse 18 and following. But I summarize in this way. All men are like grass. God allows sinners to keep going on in their sin. And that is his judgment on them. He allows them to keep sinning. And he will ultimately judge them. And so, verse 23. I'm sorry, verse 22 so I perceive that nothing is better than that a man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his heritage. For who can man, for who can bring him to see what will happen after him? Number four, judiciously, carefully, wisely enjoy your accomplishments in life. Christian, why do you need to learn the book of Ecclesiastes? I do not want to devote uh, Sundays into a, a, a fruitless endeavor. I don't want to waste your time here. This is God's truth. Why is this important for you? Well, do you live in a sin-cursed world? Yup, we sure do. We need to know what not to live for. You can be continually continually tempted to live apart from Christ. 
You'll be tempted to live for things. You'll be tempted to live for experiences. You'll be tempted to live for academics. You'll be tempted to live for foolishness. That is not the purpose of life. And you need to grasp that. The better you know this book, the better you'll be protected, and the better you're going to be able to help other believers along this line. God wants you to rightly enjoy life, food, marriage, all these things that he's created. You're going to learn about God from this book. You're going to to gain a right perspective of life. And also the frustrating result of not fearing the Lord. 